The Alaska Powerline podcast is generously supported by GenPack. As a stocking electric utility distributor, GenPack has been taking care of customers in the Pacific Northwest since 1965. With a strong customer focus and dedicated sales staff, they have built lasting relationships by providing quality products with value-added services. Now with a new Anchorage warehouse and a dedicated Alaska sales and support team, GenPack is ready to take care of their Alaska customers for years to come. Visit them at www.genpack.com for more information. GenPack, taking care of our customers since 1965. Welcome to Alaska Powerline, the podcast of Alaska Power Association, the statewide trade association for electric utilities in Alaska. On Alaska Powerline, we talk about issues facing Alaska's electric utilities, interview a wide range of guests, and demystify what it takes to provide power in the last frontier. Hi, everyone. We're happy today to have Travis Million, the CEO of Copper Valley Electric Association with us. Travis, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And Travis is here today to talk about micronuclear technology and how it might or might not work in Alaska. So, Travis, first of all, uh, Copper Valley Electric Association is, uh, you know, based there in Valdez and Glen Allen. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the service territory and a little bit about the co-op? Yeah, so Copper Valley Electric, as you said, uh, we're headquartered in Glen Allen, which is uh, part of the interior of the state of Alaska. Uh, also serve as far south as uh, Valdez, which is a, a coastal community. So our uh, our service territory is quite large, uh, about the size of the state of uh, Maryland, about 160 miles north and south by 100 miles east and west, uh, primarily along the Richardson and Glen Highways is uh, where, where we serve. Uh, we're a little unique to where we're an electrically isolated grid. We're not interconnected to any other utilities in the state of Alaska. So we have to generate, transmit, and distribute uh, power to our members. We've got uh, approximately 3,000 members, uh, 4,000 meters uh, on our system that uh, uh, that span, like I said, a very, very large area, but very small, uh, small number of uh, meter count. Yeah, that's that's kind of uh, almost like the Alaska way in a lot of respects. So you get a lot of utilities in the state that are isolated like you are. And so I think the, the key to that, of course, for folks that might not know, is that when you're in a situation like Copper Valley, there are no neighbor utilities that you can get power from if there's uh, if there's an interruption or anything like that. Correct. Correct. And that's that's one of the uh, the problems uh, that that remote utilities like Copper Valley have to deal with is. Um, because of the remoteness and we've got to rely on only ourselves, we uh, we have five power plants in order to serve our, our small membership. So a uh, lot of lot of capital costs that go into a, a remote utility like ours. Yeah, yeah. So so far, Copper Valley, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about the generation mix and how you uh, how you generate power for your consumers? Yeah. So. Uh, the, the first power plant that was put in uh, back in 1959 when uh, Copper Valley Electric was incorporated is is based in Glen Allen. And uh, that plant still resides in Glen Allen today. Uh, obviously, we've we've done a number of upgrades and, and all the equipment is uh, a lot newer than it was back in back in 1959. Uh, but that that's our main our main plant in the Copper Basin uh, in Valdez. We have four plants. We've got a, a diesel plant that resides right in downtown Valdez, which was built in 1965 after the 64 quake. Uh, we've got a cogeneration unit which resides at the Petrostar refinery over on Dayville Road in in Valdez. 
uh, kind of unique to where we purchase fuel from the refinery. It's uh, right off of the pipeline. Uh, it comes off of their distillation tower. It's called Light Straight Run or LSR. It's a naphtha type product. Uh, we we take that fuel, we burn it in our turbine, uh, generate electricity, we sell the electricity to the refinery and then on to the rest of our grid, and then we sell the exhaust heat that comes off of the turbine uh, to the refinery for part of the refining process. So uh, due to the sale of the heat, uh, it, it becomes a very economical way to generate electricity in the wintertime. Uh, in the summer, we're blessed with uh, lots of hydro. Uh, we've got two hydro plants down in Valdez. The Solomon Gulch uh, Hydro Project uh, came online in 1980 and is our workhorse. It's a dam storage project. So in the summertime, it runs full out, uh, get a lot of uh, a lot of hydro out of that project. And then in the wintertime, when the rain turns to snow and things start freezing up, we slowly drain that lake down over the entire winter. And so we get about 20 to 30 percent of our uh, generation portfolio with hydro in the in the wintertime. And then the Allison Creek Project came online in 2016 and it's a run a river project. So essentially when the water's uh, flowing down the creek, we can divert some of that water uh, through a divergent structure down a pipe or a penstock to our powerhouse and generate electricity that way. So in the summertime, we're we're blessed with hydro. We're about 100% hydro throughout the entire summer months and then uh, have to rely on fossil fuels in the wintertime to, to get us through the uh, winter generation season. Now you mentioned uh, before that Copper Valley, you know, you talked about the the number of power plants that you have, and can you just tell talk to folks a little bit from a utility CEO standpoint? You know, how important is the reliability aspect of what you do? Because somebody who doesn't know much or maybe isn't, uh, you know, in the electric utility world might say, "Man, they have, you know, they don't have many people compared to you know a large city that they serve, but they got a lot of power plants." But what does that mean in reliability terms? Yeah, and that's that's exactly why we have as many power plants as we do is from the reliability standpoint. So uh, to give kind of a snapshot, like I said, Glen Allen is is about 120 miles north of Valdez. So that we've got 100 and just over 100 miles of transmission line interconnecting the two communities. If, you know, if we're running in the summertime and we're running 100% hydro with our plants down in Valdez, we're pushing that power across our transmission line to serve the Copper River Basin and Glen Allen. If that line were to go down, uh, something were to happen to it and, and it had a fault on it or there was an accident uh, with piece of equipment or something and the line were to go down, uh, the only way to serve our, our members in Glen Allen and the Copper Basin is with our Glen Allen diesel plant. Um, similar in Valdez, the two hydro plants of the Cogen plant are on the opposite side of the bay from the city of Valdez. And so all that power has to run across the lines to, to serve Valdez. And if that line were to go down, the only way to serve the city of Valdez is with the diesel plant because it's strategically located right in town. So uh, from, from the standpoint of, you know, if you lost your, your service line, uh, to any given part of, of a city or a community, you have to have something locally to, to back that up. Yeah, and of course, we, as, as we always say at Alaska Power Association, reliability is king, especially in a state like Alaska, where in the middle of winter, you don't want your power to go out for a significant amount of time. And I know a lot of our, all of our members focus on this in terms of making sure that, you know, the power is is as consistent as possible. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Well, let's start talking about micronuclear. And, and this is, it's kind of becoming uh, a bit of a, a newer topic for folks. And I know there's been some news about it in Alaska. 
Um, Iowa Air Force Base is looking at installing one up at uh, in the at the base in Fairbanks, but it, it isn't your uh, your grandfather's nuclear, I guess is is kind of a way to put it. So, but maybe tell us a little bit about micronuclear and then why Copper Valley started looking into if it would be right for your co-op. Yeah, so I mean, micronuclear and particularly the fuel that's used is called a triso fuel um, used for this technology. It, it's been around for quite a while. I think it was developed in the seventies. Uh, but there really was no way up until recently to mass manufacture it. And so with the with, with the advancements of uh, advanced manufacturing technologies and 3D printing technologies, uh, they're, they're able to manufacture this fuel um, much more readily. And so that's why you start hearing, you know, in the last five years or so, all these different manufacturers that are out there starting to push uh, small modular reactors and micro modular reactors um, because because the fuel is available and the technology is there to where they can start deploying. So, um, like I said, it's it's not the same as uh, what most people think of for nuclear reactors. Uh, the nuclear reactor fleet in the United States right now is what they call light water reactors. They're very large scale uh, reactors, typically. Uh, you know, thousand megawatt or gigawatt uh, size and and bigger. They take up you know 40, 50 acres of land space. They've got to be located next to a water source, typically a river or lake, um, for cooling purposes. And and they are massive. Uh, these smaller reactors that uh, that we've been looking at, uh, in particular the the micromodular reactors, uh, they're typically in the five megawatt electric range can be scaled up by adding additional reactors to it. But the one we're looking at is a is two five megawatt units, so 10 megawatts electric, and takes up a, an area smaller than five acres. So very small footprint, a very small scale for, for power output. And the design that goes into it um, essentially eliminates a lot of the safety and environmental issues that the, the larger uh, light water reactors have. Um, particularly from the design standpoint and the fuel standpoint. So yeah, Copper Valley, we uh, we started looking into, into this a uh, few years back. Uh, we had a couple board members that that had been hearing a lot about it in the news and had inquired, you know, whether it's something we're looking at. We've, we've been keeping our eyes on the technology, but hadn't done any serious work uh, diving into it up until a couple of years ago. Uh, my board had told me, that they were keenly interested and wanted us to at least, you know, see what's out there and if, if it's something that could work for our membership or not. So a couple of years ago, I started diving into it a little bit more. I met with a number of manufacturers and um, really after after having some discussion, we were a pretty good fit for a couple of them that uh, with us being remotely isolated um, from other utilities along the road system, uh, fairly small load, about a 20 megawatt uh, load it, it fit pretty well with a few of them so we we took the next step looking into a feasibility study to see if it it truly would work for our for our area or not and really what we're looking at is uh which is kind of unique is trying to find a way to eliminate the use of fossil fuels in the wintertime. Uh, like i said before we're blessed with hydro in the summertime we have some of the cheapest rates in the state of alaska in the summer but in the winter we more than double our electric rates just because of the cost of fossil fuels so We've looked at you know wind and solar and biomass and tidal and geothermal and additional hydro. I mean, we, we've looked at everything over the last couple of decades and nothing really was a good solution for wintertime energy um, where the micro modular reactors may, may be able to do that for us. 
Now, just for folks who aren't from Alaska or not aware of the Copper Valley, can you talk a little bit about how cold it can get in the winter in your area? Yeah, so a uh, little unique, like I said, we're we're coastal community and we're an interior community. So uh, Glen Allen will see temperatures at 40 and 50 below zero uh, for weeks on end, and that's pretty normal. Uh, in the southern part in Valdez, it's uh, known as a snow city of, of America. It's the snowiest place in North America for, for a city. So you know, you're, you're talking three, four hundred inches of snow uh, in Valdez and, you know, 50 below zero in, in the Copper Basin. Yeah, definitely uh, an Alaska swing of, of uh, climatic circumstances there for sure. It's, it's it's always an interesting, interesting thing to look at. So now Copper Valley, you and, and the staff there have been pretty proactive in talking to the communities that you serve about the potential um, use of micronuclear so can you talk a little bit about kind of what you did to uh, make your members and consumers aware of what you're looking at? And then what have you learned along the way about what they think about it? Yeah, we we took a, a different approach than we normally would on, on any other generation project. Uh, for example, when we built our Allison Creek project, we had some public scoping meetings, uh, but we really didn't go out and solicit input from the public until after we had our feasibility study in hand and we kind of knew what the costs would be and some of the design aspects would be. But knowing that nuclear, you, you mentioned nuclear and, you know, you're going to have people that are adamantly opposed of it, people that are adamantly supportive of it. Um, we decided we wanted to get out in front before we even had the results from the feasibility study back and and start having the conversations with our membership. So we we went out in February of 22, uh, we announced uh, publicly that we were doing a feasibility study. And right after that, we started um, holding public meetings with our members. Uh, we met with city councils, chamber of commerce, had just uh, public scoping meetings to where we just opened it up and had the uh, public come out and ask questions. Uh, before that, we actually went to Juneau and met with the delegation. Um, the legislature down in Juneau and informed them what our intents were. Uh, even before we came out publicly with a feasibility study, we went back to Washington, D.C. to the, the delegation back there and let them know that we were looking into a feasibility study. So they weren't blindsided if they had a constituent call them and say, hey, what's with Copper Valley uh, looking at nuclear? And, and by doing that, what we discovered really quick is, you know, I always thought it was kind of going to be a 50-50 mix where half people didn't like nuclear, half the people liked it. And what I really found out is, we saw about 10% or so that were adamantly opposed to nuclear. And then we saw, you know, about 15, 20% that were really supportive of it. And the vast majority really had not developed an opinion one way or the other. They were, they were curious about it, but they really hadn't formed an opinion. And what, what we discovered through a multitude of public meetings is there was really three issues that kept coming up. And those are the things that we figured that we needed to address and make sure that we were educating people on. Uh, the first was the safety aspect of it. You know, there you hear nuclear, oh my gosh, you know, a bad actor could go and take the fuel and turn a bomb into it, or, you know, it could melt down or it could thermally run away and, and cause problems. And so just knowing that that was the concern, um, educating people on the fuel design that eliminates all those potential issues. And to kind of put it in perspective, uh, you know, people think of the typical generation fleet that's out in the United States now, light water reactors. I mean, there's big, you know, fuel rods that 
potentially could be stripped down, utilized, you know, for something else. The the triso fuel that's used in these units, essentially it's a poppy seed size piece of uranium triple coated in tank armor. And then it's encapsulated in more tank armor and graphite. Um, so there, there's really no way to get to the uranium. I mean, because it's it's so encapsulated and so small, you, you really can't do much with it. And and so that eliminates a lot of the the potential safety issues. Uh, the design of it does not it does not allow it to thermally run away. Um, the the way the fuel is designed, if you lost all cooling, it would basically stabilize at a temperature and not get any hotter. It's just how how it's designed to to work that way. So you don't have to have active cooling. You don't have to have uh, a water source like a river or a lake. Um, they use other things like like helium and molten salt and things like that for cooling uh, mechanisms for it. Uh, environmental was a concern that people had. You know, they were concerned that, you know, the radiation leak, if something were to go wrong, again, with the fuel design, eliminates that. Uh, to put that in perspective a little bit is the light water reactors, a lot of them have like a 10-mile um, safety zone around it to where, you know, if something were to happen, they would have to evacuate this 10-mile zone um, to prevent any any health issues. With these micromodular reactors, the the size of the safety zone is literally the perimeter of the fencing, um, and that's the way it, it works now. So, if like I said before, you've got a, a, a micromodular reactor that takes up a five acre um, space, that is your safety zone. Um, so it's you know from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and others that have talked about that, the the safety zone is much much smaller in, in these as well. And again, the the last thing that really came up was um, was waste disposal. What what happens with the waste? Uh, how how do you get rid of it? And with this this design, at least the one we're looking at right now, the way it would be uh, set up is we would have approximately uh, just over twenty years of life in the in the fuel the first time we have it fueled. So you'd you'd run the unit for twenty years, and then at that point in time, the fuel would have to be removed and new fuel put in to to continue the operation of the plant. So you don't have fuel um, being disposed near as frequently as you do with the light water reactor fleet. Um, and then essentially what they do is they take this fuel, they put it in a cask. It sits on site for six months to a year to, to cool. And then the manufacturers that we have talked to have all said, you know, that would then be their responsibility to haul it out of the state of Alaska and store it in interim storage facility. Or if the federal government has a long-term storage facility set up at that point, that's where it would be stored. So. Um, we've got assurances that the fuel would not remain in Alaska. It'd be removed uh, shortly after being pulled out and cooled, and we could get a fairly long um, long life out of the fuel between fuelings. Um, so those are the three main things that came up, the, the safety, environmental, and, and fuel disposal. Yeah, that seems like, um, you know, topics that will be on everyone's mind uh, for a new generation source. And I guess thinking about micronuclear and, and what you were saying earlier about being an isolated utility, I think it doesn't seem like the attraction to micronuclear reactors is, of course, it doesn't matter if the sun's shining or the wind's blowing, they're going to operate. And then there's also no emissions, as I understand it. Is that correct? Yeah, that that's correct. There There is no uh, no carbon monoxide emissions or there really is no emissions. In fact, even the the current nuclear fleet, you know, people will will see the stacks and see what they think is smoke coming out of the stacks, but it's essentially steam. And that's from the cooling process of the of the existing uh, light water reactor fleet. So 
Yeah, no, no emissions with it. Uh, reliability is extremely high on these. I mean, it's a lot of the technology that's used on the back end, as we would call the back end of the the generation source, is is just a standard steam turbine um, that that's used in in coal plants and in steam plants and other uh, facilities as well. So really, the the new technology is the fuel part of it, and everything else, all all your ancillary electric equipment and generators and all that is all off the shelf type of equipment, but. Uh, yeah, the, the reliability, it doesn't matter if the wind's blowing or the sun's shining um, or if the, the water's froze up or, or running, it's it's going to run at, all the time. And I guess it's also silent, too. So you're not going to have the, the noise that you might have from a diesel generation plant or something like that. Exactly. Completely silent. Yeah, that's that's good for the neighborhood, too. So. What if so? Explain to me a little bit about you know how has Copper Valley gone about this? I know you've been working with uh, a company that that specializes in this sort of uh, technology. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of where you are today in terms of uh, next steps with this this endeavor? Yeah. So as as I said before, we met with almost every manufacturer that uh, that is in the space of micromodular reactors, and to put that into perspective, that's you know. 25 megawatts or smaller uh, for for the sources because we don't we don't need anything bigger than that. Like I said before, we need about 10 megawatts and only during the winter time. So after we talked to a number of manufacturers, uh, one of the manufacturers that we partnered up with, uh, Ultra Safe Nuclear, which is based out of Seattle, uh, worked with us to to conduct a feasibility study to find out you know a few things. You know what what's the public perception in our area for this technology? You know is there physically a spot that we could locate a reactor um, that's near our existing facilities and and in our service territory? You know what what would be kind of the cost of it uh, and and just kind of looking at other things that uh, you know with seismic and and tsunami and things like that to figure out where the best location would be for it. So. Um, as we partnered with uh, UltraSafe, we got the feasibility study completed, and and we discovered a few things out of it. We we identified a couple of different places uh, that we could physically locate the the reactor, and it would be near our near our facilities and uh, integrate very well in, into our current system. Uh, we did identify and eliminate a number of other uh, potential locations that would not work for various reasons. Uh, we we discovered, you know, like I said before, the public perception has been overall pretty supportive um, in our area. There there are still some some folks that are either unsure of it or don't like it because it's nuclear. But for the most part, we've seen a lot of uh, public support uh, looking into this technology, and you know we uh, we went through and the the economics of it was is really tough. And the reason why I say it's really tough is because uh, there, you can't go and buy one of these off the shelf right now. They're just being developed. Um, they're very, very early in their in their manufacturing processes. So any manufacturer you work with, the first you know few off the manufacturing line are going to be a lot more expensive than if you wait longer. And so the other part with that is there's a ton of grant money out there from the federal government with IIJA and the the Jobs Act and everything to where there's potential for funding a lot of a big project like this. Um, but a little bit unique is where we only need our power in the in the winter time. It it doesn't really economically pencil out that well if you're just using it for the 
purpose of power generation. And so the other part with the nuclear reactors is there's a lot of heat generated and you, essentially you can, you'll have a lot more heat than you will electric. So for example, the 10 megawatt unit we're looking at also produces 30 megawatts of heat. And so uh, if you could find from an economic standpoint, it would really help the economics if you can find a buyer of that heat, um, whether it's a you know, residential heat loop um, for heating, you know, residential buildings or uh, commercial buildings, grocery stores, schools, things like that. Or if there's an industrial process, uh, you know, oil refinery or kelp manufacturing or something uh some of our members even brought up you know could you do commercial greenhouses or something like that and use the heat for for that so um trying to find a buyer or an industry that could utilize the heat um to help the economics of it uh the grant funding that's potentially out there could help drive the economics and so what we found at the end of the day was there were so many moving parts on the economic side that it really was too risky for our members to own and operate um, a reactor uh, of this of this scale. However, the manufacturer um, potentially is willing to look into owning, operating, and just selling electricity to us um, through a purchase power agreement. So. Um, at the end of the day, our, our board looked at it, recognized that there is a lot of benefits to this. This could benefit our members a bunch if we could get the, the electricity for the right price. So um, we elected not to move forward with owning and operating the plant, but we are working with the, the manufacturer to try to negotiate some terms that, that would benefit our members from just buying power from them. And then they could worry about the, the grant funding and selling of heat and, and things of that nature. I think the financial aspect is interesting because Copper Valley Electric Association is a not-for-profit electric cooperative, and so you're you know you're owned and, and owned by your members. You don't have uh, you know shareholders from other places that and to make million-dollar investments. So as a CEO of an electric cooperative, how how does that impact decision making when it comes to large capital projects like a micronuclear reactor or really any sort of generation? Uh, uh, source yeah and you know you're, you're spot on we're, we're owned by our members and so we we can get money one of two ways either through rates or through the bank and even if you get the money from the bank you still got to pay that loan back and so essentially it does come from your membership so that that goes into every decision we make especially for large capital uh, projects is how are we going to pay for this and what is what's the impact for our members look like not only today but you know 30 years down the road as you're depreciating that asset and paying that asset off so yeah as as we evaluated that um you know the the thing that caught us or came to light really quickly is yeah if if everything lined up beautifully and we got this grant money that helped pay for it and we had a, a buyer of the heat that you know things are perfect and the cost could be very very inexpensive for our members but fast forward 10 years what what if the buyer of, of the heat you know changed their mind or went out of business or whatever and you don't have the sale for the heat or the grant monies uh you know the federal government said hey we're, we're gonna quit doing this grant funding anymore and there's no grant funding anymore you know, then that's on the backs of our members. And that's where that that risk tolerance comes in to where, yeah, economically, we could probably make it work pretty well, but there's so many unknowns and so many moving parts, it's just not worth the risk uh, putting on our membership that way. 
Yeah, it sounds like, uh, you know, this, as some of these exciting technologies come about, and I know there's some even some newer technologies we're not hearing about yet that are probably under development, that for a not-for-profit electric cooperative, especially one serving um, a smaller ratepayer base, those risks are really paramount when it comes to uh, factoring in what you're going to do in the long run. Absolutely, they are. Well, Travis, we have just a few minutes left, and I wanted to ask, you've been around the the business for a long time now. Um, and, you know, the, the energy transition, is, so to speak, is kind of underway. What do you see? Where do you see things going? Are you, are you optimistic about the future for electric cooperatives, especially rural electric cooperatives? Yeah, I, I am. And I think the big thing, too, is like I said earlier on, I mean, we've looked at all these different technologies that are out there. Um, but again, some of them we haven't looked at in, you know, the better part of uh, 10 years or more. And the, the technologies have come a long way, much like the, the manufacturing of uh, the fuel for the nuclear reactors, the manufacturing for, you know, solar panels or wind turbines or battery systems have changed so much, too, that uh, not only is it making it easier to manufacture, but it's driving a lot of the costs down. So um, I think a lot of uh, the technologies that are out there now have have come a long ways from where they were at 10 to 20 years ago, and I think they're going to continue to come a long ways. So. Um, you know, like I said, for us, some of these don't really work so well for for our membership and our service territory, uh, mostly because of how how our generation mix is set up. And you know, a lot of these would work wonderful in the summertime, but you know, we're we're blessed with the hydro and don't don't necessarily need it. But I could see, you know, other technologies working well for remote uh, utilities. Um, and honestly, even with the the micromodular reactor technology, if if for some reason this doesn't pencil out for Copper Valley Electric, but you know could open the door and benefit another utility in the state, I, I look at that as a humongous win. That if it could if it can help another utility get off of diesel fuel and and lower their rates and have long term sustainable rates, um, that's that benefits the state and that's that's good for us too. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the technology coming to the fore for electric utilities, I almost compare it to, you know, personal electronics. Do you want to be the first person to buy the brand new version, the new technology when it's expensive and and untried and untested? Or do you want to wait for a little while to see how it pans out? And it seems like electric utilities are are facing that same uh, conundrum, but at a larger scale as they provide power to their members. Yeah, for sure, and really, that's uh, that was kind of where we were at too with the with the micromodular reactors. Is you know we could sit and wait, and the price would come down. But the thing we found is potentially to have that partnership with the manufacturer and being able to deploy one of the first ones could actually benefit our members way more than waiting, say, ten years until the de- the development of the the technology is proven out. So it, it's one of those uh, you know. Catch twenty two is where do you jump in early and and be kind of on the forefront of it and you know have some of that risk of it not being proved out yet or do you wait until the end and maybe miss miss the boat on on what could have saved your members a bunch of money so um, yeah we we don't normally like to be serial number one which in this case we we wouldn't be we'd be like the third or fourth one that would be deployed but uh, but we saw that there's there was more benefit to try to partner with a manufacturer than to wait yeah. Travis, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting stuff happening. And as we always say at APA and our members say, if it can work in Alaska, it can work anywhere. So we're going to keep an eye on how things go at Copper Valley. And maybe we'll have you back for an update sometime in the future, uh, depending on which way things go. So, Travis, thanks for joining us today. Yep, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
And this has been Alaska Power Line, the podcast of Alaska Power Association. Thanks for joining us, everyone, and we will see you next time.